Hello, this is Terry Vandermark, author of Life Before the Alien Magic series. This is novella number two, titled The King of the Northwood. Mother Candide absently Mother Candide absently jostled her infant daughter in the fireplace, rotating fiery logs with her toe, causing the child to wail in pain. She waited a full minute, then reached in and pried her loose. The mother refused to embrace her, only laid her at her feet and said, You endured a minute in the fire. The two of you must last much longer if you, if your brother, are to be villagers of my golden bridal. Candide of the village golden bridal started the one boy and the one girl, obviously determining if they were worthy of life. The two, husband and wife, knew they were not supposed to ever give birth, that there was a high price associated with bringing new people, especially into the North Wood. Each birth had to be purchased in blood. Both Caroline, uh, both Candide and her husband were willing to pay. They understood the burden could always be passed on to others. A loophole both recognized, admitting it frankly before their Congress on their wedding night, the pair would risk bloodshed, though not their own. They would be hated, but that meant nothing, as long as they had a family. Candide slid forward and reached for her son. She was about to place him in the fire of the hearth for a further test, when Father Mayor Taurus noisily entered the living room, his weaponry chafing his armor. He took a pair of silver crowns from his satchel and tossed them before the kneeling wife. He said evenly, I've killed two, one lord, one dame, two worthy lives for two others. The price paid. Whoever did decide this to be necessary, the spilling of blood, to bring a child of mine into this world, he is worthy, he is worthy of succumbing to the point of my blade. Mayor Taurus approached his wife, he bent over and stroked the forehead of each of his two children and shuddered violently, acknowledging the unyielding power in each of them. Mother Candide asked, Well, what truth to empower each? Yours? Mine? Mayor and Taurus replied hoarsely, One mine, one yours. For balance. He did not say for what he intended. For blind justice, evoking justice, was the only sensible choice when bringing children into their hostile, unforgiving world. Candide scooped up the boy first. As she cradled the infant boy, she fumbled for a scroll, an unspoken secret, a hidden truth, the undeniable power within that scroll. Whoever had penned it had died a hundred years prior. The truth, should the truth ever get out, could start a war or end a reign or thrust a race into slavery. And the mother took the scroll. She ignited the frail paper with a blue flame kindled on her, fore, on her forefinger, which ate the fuel hungrily. Once the scroll was consumed, she swiped the ashes across the infant's forehead. It was understood that this act allowed the child uncommon ab abilities. something he would learn about himself 
as he grew older, something he could master and strengthen to make him a force as he matured into adulthood. She performed the same rite with her young daughter. With the act complete, Mayor Taurus nodded. He gently took the pair, then, in, then said menacingly to Candide, Your place in my life and in Golden Bridal has ended. Immediately the door burst open, accompanying the chill February wind were six burly men dressed in heavy furs, snow ornamenting their shoulders. Mayor Couvray and the other villagers had come. They were obviously emboldened by the promise of wealth. Candide only stood without protest as the men seized upon her. So this is it, asked a solemn Candide. My life is forfeit? You should never have agreed to bearing these children, not if you wanted to live. The six men escorted the woman to the door. Mayor Couvray stuck out his hand, putting it in Taurus's red, wind-shaped face. Well, I agreed to do this. You know the price. Taurus nodded. He reached into his pocket and pulled out six scrolls. Six scrolls, each bound by the seal of the Mayor of Golden Bridal. Six separate truths including the one weakness that was debilitating that, if known by the reader, could allow for the murder of Mayor Taurus, the eldest mayor of the North Wood, arguably the most respected and the most powerful man in the entire Abyssin. He assured Couvray, One of these scrolls will reveal the means of my death. I entrust you, and you alone, with that knowledge. Mayor Couvray sneered and pocketed the scrolls, though he obviously did appreciate the trust Mayor Taurus demonstrated in him. Taurus understood that no one would know his said secret. For whoever read any one scroll, sealed by himself, was marked for death. Secrets contained in the scrolls were what gave the villagers of the Northwood their authority and might. Secrets that remained secrets allowed the villages of the Northwood to govern the rest of the Abyssin without threat of annihilation. Candide appeared fearless, as if she had educated herself for this in inevitability. After all, hadn't Taurus taught her how to prepare for the threat of murder? As the mayor and every other villager of the North would, if wise, knew to do that for themselves. Immediately, the woman's solemnity she discarded. She cackled and shamelessly opened a scroll that littered the window sill nearest the open door. Your wife, Mr. Friend, was once a toad. Did you not know that, Mr. Friend? She was once a toad and apparently a proud toad at that. Get this fool of a woman out of here. As Mayor Couvray and the others escorted the irreverent, frightful, wacky mother Candide out, Mayor Taurus humbled, embraced the two children, soaking their precious lives in. He was troubled by the curious feelings he had for the pair. Was it fear? Was it dread? Was it contempt? How was it that any life could provoke such feelings in him? They were so young, after all, so weak. They knew not the power contained within them. They could not appreciate the gift the two imparted upon them, as he took the lives of two distinguished persons. He knew that, in a couple months, 
he would surrender the pair to the hostile judgment of the North Wood, as all the children in the North Wood, however forbidden they were, must be nursed by their true, if cruel, mother. Mayor Taurus wondered if he loved these two children. It would be another secret, among a bevy of secrets maintained by the mayor of Golden Bridal, a secret that would not, that could not see the light of day. He held the pair tight and whispered, I will not say this to another soul. I hope you grow up to become something that I am not. So what's the plan? asked Gregory of his fellow villager from Bloody Dagger, named Cheron. I assume we enter the village Bloody Tunic. I'm guessing we take it from the inside. Cheron took control, though none of his fellow villagers recalled knowing the curious man for more than a couple of days. He slid in unremarkably and uh, assumed control only now among his fellow villagers. Soon, soon he would be he would undeniably control the other 26 villages including golden bridal the most feared and respected village of all allowing the ambitious man to make his move to own the entire north wood i'm scared swore daver you have reason to be afraid more than some of us answered thender smugly i mean what if god is there what if he reveals himself to us Charon shrugged. I'm assuming I met gods before. I'm guessing their weakness is your faith in them. If you don't believe in them, then that might, might take them down a peg. So much faith lost, and it's like the being is beset with a disease, like he's mortal. The only problem is that disease is always contagious, sort of in. Yep, I don't think there is a cure for that disease. There's almost certainly only doubt. Once you doubt in God's presence, really no coming back from that for anyone. The party from the village Bloody Dagger huddled in the woods, watching the activity some 500 yards away, just outside the village of Bloody Tunic. The frightful undead served as a barrier, hobbling and stumbling around the village. Two separate bands, the exterior wall marching clockwise and the interior marching counterclockwise creating a horrific barrier few would entertain breaching. Only those desperate with a hope for God would challenge these frights. The fifteen persons from Bloody Dagger watched pensively. How are we supposed to get past these zombies? queried Devin. Should they see us as a threat, we won't make it within ten yards of the village. There must be a way in, stressed Gregor. News has reached throughout the entire Abyssin that this village welcomes all with open arms. There must be a way, and we'll find it. The fifteen persons from the village of Bloody Dagger slinked their way through the forest, past the charred ground that was evidence of the effort to destroy the same village six months prior. They watched without uttering a word as they neared the rotating wheels of the undead. How were they supposed to make it past these monsters? The fifteen continued to advance until they were within an arm's length of the marching horrors. What do we do? asked Zetter. We take one more step and we'll have entered a buzzsaw. I'm pretty sure a way will reveal itself, acknowledged Charon as the zombies continued blindly, as if unaware how close a meal stood to them. Come on, said someone cheer cheerily. 
The fifteen looked at one another. What was this about? Suddenly, a child emerged from the space between both staggering walls. Come on, follow me, he urged them. He was fearless, and the zombies avoided him as if he were some tree. They simply navigated around him. The boy, smiling broadly, stepped past the shuffling zombies and stood before the abject villagers that had come from Bloody Dagger. Well, what do we have here? inquired the boy. Somebody with God burdening them? Welcome, welcome to the next destination on your wild, exciting journey. The boy tugged at the sleeve of one of the cloaked villagers. I have eyes to see. It's why I've come here. To welcome you to our village. The boy extended a hand and took the hand of Devon. That, that a boy. I take your hand, you take his hand. That's the way we'll get through there. And with that said, the boy pulled at the reluctant hand of Devon, and he, in turn, pulled at Charon. Slowly but surely, the sixteen worked their way past the dull undead and into the no-man's land between both barriers. The boy, once in the open space between the shuffling and buckling undead, instructed the villagers to assemble in a circle. Now, for the price you gotta pay. What is this you do? asked Gregory, snarling. Take us inside the village. We're not your playthings. The boy chuckled. You got a, a lot to learn. But you're not the first stubborn, angry persons I allowed into Bloody Tunic. The boy slid inside the circle made by the fifteen. As you can see, I'm a person of keen sight. No, more than that, a person of super awareness. I saw you in the, in the woods just north of here. Before that, I saw you congregating the village of Bloody Dagger. I saw Mayor Volk driving you to come here. I see you. I see the threat you present. I said to myself, ah, I must let these fifteen come to me. They have business in Bloody Tunic, and none of it involving finding God. Gregory had obviously had enough. He allowed his blade to slip from its leather scabbard fastened to his forearm inside his palm. But just as he was about to, to pounce, he felt the chill of a steel blade creasing the fold of his own neck. There was a hot whisper in the man's ear. I would not do that if I were you. Gregory swallowed hard. He flipped his knife in the palm of his hand, then thrust the handle into the waiting hand of the bold villager behind him. Charon took it and pocketed it. The boy continued to walk the interior of the circle created by the fifteen villagers, surveying them. He declared, I am the gatekeeper to this village of Bloody Tunic. I don't let just anyone in. There is at least one of you who knows that. Only the frightened, the despondent, those seeking direction. Those I won't allow in? Why, they increase the number of th these walls. Do they not? Ha! What do we do? asked Leonard. We have nothing to offer you, said Gregory. Jeez! Not even trying? Your lives must be worth something. Yet you offer me nothing. So be it. I will kill every last one of you. Don't think I can do, can't, don't think I can do it? 
Just ask any one of these walking corpses that surround us. I have something that might interest you, stated Charon. He peered intently into the boy's eye. What if I told you I have seen a scroll, some scroll that involves you? Are you not named Theo? Theo, the boy, hesitated. Ultimately, he chuckled and said, This is a ruse. You have not read any scroll. That scroll that you said you have seen, there is no such scroll. None. Theo lunged at Charon. He was about to succumb to his knife thrust when he wrestled with the boy and fought him off. The boy spun away, breathless. Charon told him, Most certainly you have a sister, a redhead, hilarious, named Rose. Theo glared at Charon for the longest time. Well, directed Thender coldly, Tell him there is no such person. Tell him that he lies and that in vain. Theo grimaced before saying, I had a sister, it is true. She was named Rose, but she is no more. What if I told you you are wrong? Don't you see, young Theo? Stated Charon, I am convinced I do have something to offer. She's dead, okay? Rose, the light of my life, she's dead. No corpse can prevent that. Each one of you fifteen from becoming the same. Charon smiled and nudged the boy. But the girl Rose lives. That is her, right there. It's not the truth. I know what I saw. She fell four hundred feet from the top of the cliff to the rocky landing below. No one could have survived this fall. She did not survive that fall. I am almost certain I know the truth, insisted Sharon. Rose may have fallen from such a height to the rocks so far below, but I am pretty sure she did not die when she struck, she struck the ground. In fact, almost assuredly, she was rescued, held aloft by angels. What if that is what the scroll says? Do you take me for some dummy? asked Theo. Angels did not come to her aid. She died. She died, she's dead, and there's nothing you or me or anyone can do for that. Charon smiled. I guess what I say sounds empty. I guess I can't refute what you have witnessed with your own eyes, which is why I brought you here with us. Theo gaped. What is this you say? asked the boy. Charon looked. Charon took a step back. Go on, he instructed the boy. He gestured to one of the fourteen he had come with, the face concealed by the cowl of a heavy cloak. Theo gravely approached the masked figure. The boy took the curious person's hand. I do know these hands, the same kind hands that cradled me while creatures scared me, and the earth shook. I was so afraid. I did not know peace unless I was in her hands. Is it so? Can she be alive? Theo took a step back. He paused, then looked, then looked Charon's way. The man prompted the gatekeeper. Go on, go on, take a look. Theo turned to the cloaked person standing in front of him. Gently, he lifted his hands, clutched the cowl of the mysterious person's robe, and pulled it back. A girl with curly locks of red hair and a cherubic smile and ruddy cheeks blinked lively before him. Theo fell back. What's this? How can it be? It is my sister, beautiful Rose. The boy fell on the smiling teen. Both chuckled as they embraced one another. My sister, I must tell you something. 
Now that you have been taken back from death's door, go on, urged the girl. Open your heart to me. I am jealous of you, jealous of our parents' love for you. It is why I threw you to your death. Do the gods hate me? Do they keep me from being happy? What have you done? demanded Thinder hotly of Sharon. You must have known of Theo's hate for your, his sister. Thank you, insisted the gatekeeper. Thank you for bringing Rose back to me. For my place in this world is kept away from me as long as my sister draws breath. I thought I had finished you off, Rose. I don't make that mistake again. Theo lunged at Rose, his blade swiftly outstretched, but Sharon quickly intervened. He tripped the boy. Theo fell flat on his face. The boy went skittering across the ground, lost amidst the shuffling feet of the unceasing undead. You are not allowed to kill your sister. I will not have it. The boy sat up, tending to his bloodied elbow. You have no choice. Only I can get you past these zombies. That's why I am called the gatekeeper, after all. I acknowledge the precautions I had to take to get past you, and for this to get into Bloody Tunic. Mm -hmm. The boy smirked. I lost my sister once. I can lose my sister again. Should she die at my hand or torn to bits by my loyal monsters, makes no difference. After, all, after her, all of you. Which is why I've brought someone else. What's this you say? queried the boy, confused and terrified. Charon turned and approached another individual, similarly cloaked, indistinguishable from the other villagers that had entered the circle of stumbling zombies. Who might you be? asked the boy. Can it be anyone I despise more than my own sister? It must be someone you fear. Theo, Theo look at those hands there. What do you see? A priest's hands? A builder's hands? Theo, those hands belong to the man who you know to be your father. Theo collapsed before the tall, burly, masked figure. It can't be. This can't be my father. How can it be? What would you have him do? He, know, he knows now of your contempt for your sister. He fears for his own safety. Father, you have never understood me. I've tried everything, but I have never done what you have you demanded of me. Father has not come to you, Charon insisted. In fact, both Rose and your father have come here for their own personal reasons. They have come because they seek a new direction for their lives. They seek salvation. I'm not there yet, stated Theo. He appeared miserable, despondent, sitting inconsolable in the ashes. I want to enter Bloody Tunic, I do, but my fear of death keeps me all, all the time outside. It takes time, acknowledged Sharon. Your sister and your father, they have come to terms with their fear and their mortality. You must enter when you yourself are ready, not before. But you must admit, as the gatekeeper... You must not prevent us from entering the village. You understand? Theo nodded solemnly. I do. Here, I'll let you pass from darkness into light. And so saying, Theo produced a rod of steel. He approached the inner circle of walking zombies. 
He did not break stride, only extended the hand holding the rod. He instantly created a fissure. The zombies frozen in place. Behind the intrepid boy walked Charon, followed by Rose, her father, and the other twelve villagers. One harrowing minute later, the fifteen villagers of Bloody Dagger, sent to disrupt the rule and community of village Bloody Tunic by the mayor Valk, passed through the inner circle of undead and arrived at the quiet, modest, newly erected village of the God-fearing. Theo took Charon aside. I must tell you, he stated, I did not think anyone cared for me. Not this much. You brought both my father and Rose to me. You could have purchased passage with any nameless scroll. No, you, you sought to befriend me. For that I am grateful. I will always look out for you, for as long as I live. Come inside, bloody tunic, when you are ready, conveyed Charon. Look for your sister and father there. With a tear in his eye, Theo smiled, then backed up. Once he was some twenty yards away, the wall of, dun of undead closed all around him. Slowly and methodically, the spinning wheel of, uh, of shuffling undead resumed its eternal pace. Thinder grabbed Charon by the arm. What's this witchcraft you do? Charon looked Thinder in the eye. I don't know what you mean. You know, and I know, who was behind that cloak. Not this rose person. No, it was Pauline. I'm looking at her now. I miss Pauline. The only one who laughed at my jokes. I want her back. I don't know that person. This rose person? Will I have Pauline back? You'll have Pauline back. A number of minutes from now, you'll have Pauline back. Thinder continued pressing. What about his fa What about his father? this father fellow? You may remove the coal of his cloak. You may see him for who he is. Thinder followed. He swiftly removed the concealing cowl, revealing the longtime friend, Clint. Okay. All's right there. But you must be a wizard. But you must be a wizard. Is that what you are telling me? Is it something you failed to tell the mayor of or any one of us? Are you a danger to all of us? As all wizards are to the villagers of the Northwood? As Thinder watched, the Rose Woman transformed into her friend Pauline into their friend Pauline. Can you do something to, to me? queried Thinder, mesmerized. You want me to? Thinder grimaced. I want to see what you are capable of. Charon grunted and said, Okay, Thinder. You are a molar, you are a marble sculpture. Immediately Thinder convulsed, foaming at the mouth he became rigid as a board and fell flat. He was transformed into an immaculate sculpture. His face was frozen in wonder and terror. Walk around him, he instructed the thirteen other villagers from Bloody Dagger. Is Thender dead? asked Gregory, shaken. For all intents and purposes, yes, he is. The others gaped in horror as they passed by the lifeless Thender. That is the conclusion of first part of novella number two of Life before the Alien Magic, titled King of the Northwood. I hope to have the second installment uh, within the next couple of days, so listen for it. Thanks again for tuning in.